0: Yeah. There's just some more details on the executive order regarding the meat supply. So it seems like the issue right now is that with the processing plants close down, there are all these animals that can't be processed into meat to hit American supermarkets. Yeah, we're, supermarket we're handling it probably today. We'll have
1: that. Uh, that uh, it's a roadblock. Uh, it's sort of a legal roadblock more than anything else. We'll have that done today. You can speak to the chief in a little while if you'd like. Okay. One
0: of the first... Parts that we have to do is essentially we have to make a vaccine to the target, in this case, the coronavirus, that is specific for these animals and and allows them to produce antibodies that are highly targeted to that coronavirus.
1: Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. If you catch COVID and get better... Your body will make antibodies, and that's a good thing. It'll help protect you if COVID tries to come back. Antibodies are proteins produced by your immune system to recognize and stop intruders from harming your body. The most common intruders are viruses and bacteria. When one of these pathogens tries to get in, your immune system mounts a defense. Your antibodies are essentially the immune system's scouts. They find the antigens, the viruses and bacteria, stick to them and signal the immune system where to seek and destroy them. Until there's a vaccine, antibodies will be a key early weapon in our arsenal against the novel coronavirus. We're talking about a shot you'd have to take every couple of months to stay safe, unlike a vaccine that could last a lifetime. But the shot would be a godsend to healthcare workers, seniors, and other high-risk populations. Right now, America's world-leading biotech industry is harvesting multiple breakthroughs to deliver antibody therapeutics as part of our early line of defense against COVID-19. Most biotechnology companies in this fight are working on monoclonal antibodies, but today's guest doesn't lead one of those companies. He's the CEO of a truly unique biotech He could become the first scientist ever to make an approved medicine using polyclonal human antibodies produced by a creature other than a human. And that's no small thing because as the coronavirus mutates, it could potentially outwit drugs made from monoclonal antibodies that bind to a single target. Polyclonal antibodies bind to multiple targets and therefore provide a more durable defense. You're about to learn how a big beloved animal could be our secret weapon against the coronavirus, which of course originally came from an animal. You'll never look at a hamburger the same way again. My guest today is Dr. Eddie Sullivan. He's the president, CEO, and co-founder of a unique biotech called SAB Biotherapeutics in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The company makes human antibodies to fight disease. Well, lots of biotechs make human antibodies, but what makes this company different is they make them in, wait for it, cows. Well, welcome to the podcast, Eddie. Great to be with you, Jim. Well, you and I have known each other for about 15 years, and I can remember when you drove me around your company's farm soon after I first came to bio, and you explained science to me in ways that even I could understand. So today, I want you to do the same for our listeners. So you bet. before we get into the science, I want to tell me your story. Um, how did you get into the world of biotechnology?
0: Well... Certainly, it has been something that I have had interest in and a passion about uh, for a good deal of my life. I remember attending my 20-year reunion after graduation from high school. And of course, in that type of environment, you're all talking about uh, uh, what you're doing now compared to what you thought you would be doing uh, in high school. And I remember a lot of my old high school buddies saying, you mean you're actually doing what you said you were going to do? (laughs) <laughs> and so this has been something I have been interested in for a long time. And, and so this is what's brought me to the point that I am now.
1: Well, if you ask the average person where they might go to look for a biotech company, I think they might say Boston or San Francisco. And you could probably ask a thousand people, and not one of them would come up with Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So how did you wind up working with cows? on a technology that can save people from COVID.
0: Well, you know, Jim, uh, the technology uh, for this uh, project actually originated at the University of Massachusetts. But I will tell you that very early on in the project, we knew that one of the most important things that we could do is to be in places uh, that are best for the cows. And that was what brought us here. We were already working with companies in this area that were working with us to produce these animals. And certainly um, that uh, brought us uh, to the point of evaluating, perhaps even moving the entire company to South Dakota. And because of the agricultural economy here, this fit that we sort of have both in the agriculture as well as in high tech and, and all of that sort of thing, we found a great home right here in South Dakota. And although we're in South Dakota, of course, our aspiration is to be a global company. We are working on things that are going to, uh, in, our, in, you know, in our hope and, and what we're trying to do, help people all over the world. And so we actually are collaborating with people all over the world. And certainly in this day and time with communication and travel and all of the other things that are available to us, uh, this is a great place for us to live and work and do uh, this, type of, uh, this type of project.
1: Well, good for you. And I'm I'm guessing the traffic getting to and from your place of work is less than it might be in some of those other hubs.
0: Well, Jim, I have to admit to you that there are occasions when I'm on the Beltway in D.C. and I say, ah, this is why I live in South Dakota.
1: <laughs> well, I said if if we asked a thousand people um, where they might find a biotech company, probably none of them would have said uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I think if you took the same thousand people and said, well, if you were in a biotech company, Um, What kind of um, animals do you think you'd see? And I think they'd say, well, mice, rats, maybe rabbits or monkeys, but no one would think cows. So I'm trying to figure out, I think people would like to know why you use cows, because after all, they eat much more than, than mice and they poop way more than mice. So why cows? Well, the other thing that they do way more than mice is produce a
0: lot of antibody. And so, you know, in the original concept of this project, we looked out into the world and we saw a gap, this ability to produce large quantities of human, fully human, polyclonal antibodies And we really set out to create medicines that could fight disease in the same way that our bodies do naturally. And that's the entire premise behind this, is to be able to create something that works within our bodies in the exact same way that our bodies already fight disease. And so through genetic engineering and antibody science, we've been able to do exactly that by harnessing that native immune response that human immune response in a large animal species and that's why we picked cows these are large animals they have a robust immune system we can hyperimmunize and target that antibody response specifically to a bacteria or a toxin or a, var, a virus and produce that antibody at very large scale
1: so what you said is that in these cows you can make you can make human antibodies so how do you get a cow to give you human antibodies?
0: Well, the first thing, of course, is that you have to be able to transfer those human immune or, or antibody genes into the animals and then turn off the animal antibody genes. And we were able to accomplish that in such a way that these animals are first of all born with human antibodies, so they recognize the human antibodies as being part of self. And then we turned off those genes that would normally produce cow antibodies. And so these animals use the human antibodies the same way that they would their own in fighting, you know, whatever uh, their bodies may come in contact with. But we can vaccinate these animals now, and they produce very large, very potent and neutralizing antibodies to the targets that we immunize them with. And we hyper-immunize them. So we're creating an immune response in these animals that is extremely robust.
1: Well, so, you know, as you and I both know, being in the world of biotechnology, when you talk about moving genes from one species to another, there are some people... And for the most part, don't really understand the science. Get very weirded out by that, um, you know, and they're into to calling them Franken cows or something like that. Um, but here's a here's a case where, with some, I won't say relatively simple, but but um, straightforward uh, bioengineering to create a a, a transgenic uh, outcome, uh, you've got a herd of animals that uh, might very well possibly be the key to saving millions of lives. Am I right? Well, that's exactly
0: right. And, you know, we live in a day and time when there are absolutely phenomenal ways that we can do things like this in a responsible way and be able to produce things that are going to have a significant impact on on lives all over the world. And that is the real critical component here Uh, when we talk about biotechnology and the promise the promise of the science, but not only the promise, but what is actually happening. And that's exciting.
1: So what other examples are there of um, non-human animals being used to create antibodies for humans, other species other than the cow?
0: Well, you know, Jim, it was <clears throat> more than 120 years ago when a great scientist, Emil von Behring. Uh, had this idea or noticed that when he transferred serum from horses into people with diphtheria that the horse serum had something in it that were able to help the humans to recover from this very serious disease and later he was actually the first to receive the uh, the, the Nobel Prize in Medicine and so this is the exact same type of concept with one very, very important difference. When you transfer animal antibodies into humans, animals recognize those as, as being part of self, but humans recognize them as being a foreign protein, and they can create a, a severe reaction. We, in fact, we call it serum sickness, but if we're able to have those animals naturally produce human polyclonal antibodies, and then we are able to harvest those antibodies from the plasma of those animals and purify them and then transfer them to humans, you are providing something that the, that the human body is already used to recognizing and already used to using and fighting disease.
1: So there's no, um, w- when, when you create these antibodies in the cow, and you inject them into the humans, into the patients. Uh, is it fair to say that there are no uh, bovine genetics at all in that uh, in those antibodies?
0: There are no bovine genetics, or for, for that matter, human genetics. What we're transferring is the proteins themselves, and we're highly purifying that that human antibody, so that when we transfer uh, these. Human antibodies from these animals into humans, we are going to have those humans have a very natural response to receiving that—a very high safety and low uh, uh, concern that these antibodies are going to have some sort of adverse or serious adverse effect in. Now I'm
1: going to I'm going to challenge you because as I said in the beginning, I remember when you. Explain to me the differences between a monoclonal antibody and a polyclonal antibody. And I want to see if you can do that for the audience here in ways that they'll understand what the difference is and why that matters to you and what you're doing scientifically.
0: Well, first of all, uh, in, in, in the simplest terms, monoclonal antibodies, a fantastic technology that has been around for, you know, more than, well, nearly 30 years now. But a, but a technology wherein we are taking a single antibody that binds to a single place on a, on a target and is able to neutralize uh, that target. So it's and, binding to just And by target, a, we're talking
1: about a, an element of a cell, right?
0: That, that's correct. Uh, whether it would be a virus or a toxin or a bacteria or even a human cell uh, antigen, this, this, this place on a human cell that we would want to target, for instance, in cancer.
1: So it's but, designed to sort of fit together like puzzle pieces with, this, with the, uh, the, the cell or the pathogen you're attacking.
0: That's exactly right. So a monoclonal antibody is, is binding to a single place, but in reality, the way that our bodies naturally fight disease is a polyclonal response. And what makes that so critically different is that polyclonal antibodies are binding to multiple locations on that target. And not only that, but there are even multiple antibody species that are binding to those single places. And what this allows the, do, the, the body to do is for the immune system to act in very natural ways in eliciting the entire immune response in being able to fight the disease. So it, it has been known for, for decades that human polyclonal antibodies and polyclonal antibodies in general have very interesting natural uh, anti-inflammatory properties, anti-metastasis properties. And others that they just naturally have. And so we're just being able to target that response to a specific disease using these unique animals that produce human antibodies rather than the animal antibodies.
1: So if polyclonal antibodies are so good, why isn't everyone using them?
0: Well, up until now, Jim, the only uh, source of human polyclonal antibodies has been Um, from human donors. And one of the things that has been very difficult is being able to have targeted human polyclonal antibodies coming from human donors. We can't vaccinate or hyper-vaccinate humans for the purpose of using their antibodies to treat other humans. We can certainly do that with these animals. Now, I do want to point out that polyclonal antibodies have been used for generations to treat disease both antibodies that come from human donors. We call that human plasma or human IVIG. Uh, the other way is animal antibodies have continued to be used and are still used today in being able to, to treat certain diseases. And so we've used both human and animal antibodies to treat humans for generations. And there are over 48 approved FDA products that are polyclonal, true polyclonal antibodies uh, today.
1: Well, I remember when you brought one of your cows to the Bio-International Convention in Chicago several years ago, and I said, I think that would be the first time a cow was ever transported from South Dakota to Chicago that would survive and return home because cows have been for probably Well over 150 years, uh, taken to slaughter in Chicago. Um, Now, everyone has heard of Dolly the Sheep, made huge news 25 years ago or something like that, uh, as the very first cloned animal. But was it?
0: Well... I will tell you, Jim, that in fact, there were cloned animals prior to that. But those what made Dolly unique is that she came from a cell that had been differentiated into a skin cell. Prior to that time, the only animals that had been cloned had come from embryonic cells. And so that's what made Dolly unique. Interestingly, though, Dolly obviously was a sheep. At the same time that Dolly was being produced, there was another group, in fact, at the University of Massachusetts that was producing cloned cows. The difference is, is that sheep have a four-and-a-half-month gestation. Cows have a nine-month gestation. And so you've heard of Dolly, but you haven't heard of George and Charlie, and they are the first two cloned animals. And we had them here in South Dakota for years, actually. And they live to be ripe old men of more than 12 years old, Uh, But this is where the science behind SAB biotherapeutics actually started, was being able to clone these very large cattle in order to do that genetic engineering and then take those cells that we genetically engineered and turn those into the animals that produce human antibodies.
1: So George and Charlie could have been somebody, but Dolly just got in the way and beat them to it, huh? She certainly did. Well, you learned about the COVID outbreak pretty early on from a former military colleague and you got started on putting your cows to work against COVID pretty early in this pandemic, didn't you?
0: Well, we did. You know, Jim, when we came back to work after the uh, holidays, uh, I remember uh, being in a meeting and our chief medical officer, Dr. Tom Luke, uh, says in that meeting, hey, there's something that we need to take a look at that's going on over in China Um, and uh, it it could be a a new outbreak. What's interesting about this, Jim, is that prior to knowing anything about COVID-19 or SARS coronavirus 2, SAB had already been working with the Department of Defense here in the U.S. to be able to produce a rapid response system where we could we could respond rapidly to an, a new and emerging disease. And we were in the middle of all of that project and getting everything together for that project when this real-world scenario hit. And, and, so, and why,
1: why DOD? Why the Department of Defense? Is it be, is it in part because they were concerned about the potentiality of a bioterror event?
0: Uh, Jim, it, it's both. I mean, obviously, the Department of Defense has concerns both uh, to protect the public from, the, from perhaps a threat. But remember that our good military uh, people uh, are deployed all over the world. And so emerging disease has just as much interest from a military perspective as from a civilian perspective. And so uh, this is something that the Department of Defense certainly has concern that they are able to respond as rapidly as possible to both emerging diseases as well as biothreats.
1: Okay, so um, viruses can mutate, and um, we haven't heard too much in this pandemic about, you know, the the, the coronavirus mutating. But uh, talk about um, the, the the tendency of viruses to mutate, and how a polyclonal antibody might be uh, of importance in that regard. Well, Jim,
0: of course, uh, viruses do mutate, and they particularly mutate because when we put pressure on them by focusing in on a single place on those viruses, if there are mutated viruses that exist in the environment that have a mutation to that place where perhaps a monoclonal antibody or a small molecule drug is specifically binding to have its effect, then those viruses that are out in the environment that have mutated that particular binding site will become prevalent.
1: So I assume, I assume, Eddie, that the issue here is that when you when you have the next mutation, if you're only if you've only been attacking it from one angle, um, then and the and the virus mutates, you're, you're 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 pretty much done. Whereas if you have a polyclonal antibody coming at it from multiple directions. Um, you you've got you you can still thwart it regardless of the mutation. Is that about that, right?
0: That's exactly right, and that's okay. what we have the data. Unlike monoclonal antibodies or perhaps even small molecule drugs um, that are highly specific and act on a single place on the virus, when you put pressure on the virus in that single place then as you said, these viruses just have this natural ability to mutate randomly. And when you get those random mutations that mutate the place that a drug is, uh, its action is taking place, then that's how uh, viruses and bacteria can develop resistance. When you have a polyclonal antibody that is binding to multiple locations, multiple places on that virus or bacteria, then it is very difficult for there to be a mutant out there in the environment where all of those places have been mutated. And so this makes it very difficult for resistance to develop in these diseases to uh, polyclonal antibodies.
1: So how long does it take to make a polyclonal antibody in a cow?
0: Well, of course, uh, one of the first parts that we have to do is essentially we have to make a vaccine to the target, in this case, the coronavirus, that is specific for these animals and, and allows them to produce antibodies that are highly targeted to that coronavirus. And so we have to produce that vaccine very rapidly, test it, and then immediately start Uh, uh, producing that in such a way that we can uh, vaccinate the animals and get them to start producing that antibody that is going to be used for evaluation and testing and clinical trials. And so that's the first step. Once we have that antigen in place, we can have material ready for clinical trials in 90 days.
1: And so how long does it take for the first step?
0: So that first step usually takes us Somewhere between four to six weeks.
1: It's pretty quick, and then and then you're ready for human trials.
0: And then you're ready for human trials, and that's exactly the response that we have been working on with regard to to using this system uh, in this pandemic.
1: So, the antibodies that you're creating will not serve. Correct me if I'm wrong, but will not serve as a vaccine against coronavirus that will be injected once and last for uh, years. This is really an, an antibody that has a, uh, has, has a temporary lifespan in the human. Is that right?
0: Well, they do have a temporary lifespan in the human, um, and it, but it's very long, uh, as opposed to maybe a small molecule drug these antibodies naturally have about a a 28-and-a-half-day half-life. That means after 28-and-a-half days, you have half as much antibody as you started with, and so on every 28 days thereafter. So these antibodies can stick around for a long time. Therefore, as you said, they are not a vaccine in in the same sense that we think perhaps of the influenza vaccine, for instance, but they are used to both treat Uh, the disease in humans that are sick by supplementing this natural immune response that their bodies are already going through. That's the first way these antibodies can be used. And the second can actually be by giving this to people that either have not been exposed yet or that have recently been exposed but have not developed disease. We call that either pre- or post-exposure prophylaxis. You can actually use antibodies in this case to be able to prevent those people from developing the full-blown disease. And so it's just by giving them this natural immune response that will stay in their bodies over a fairly long period of time, not, not, perhaps not as long as if you vaccinate and they're producing their own antibodies, But certainly in the case of first responders and others, we can give them instantaneous protection. So it can serve as
1: a bridge from where we are now until we have a full-blown active vaccine for humans. Is that right?
0: That's exactly right. And not only that, but remember that even in the case of influenza, where we have a tremendous amount of experience and vaccine technology has developed over time, We still have populations that do not uh, produce good antibody against these vaccines. And so uh, these antibodies can also be used, uh, perhaps in the case of elderly that do not uh, develop antibodies uh, readily to vaccine, Uh, we can use them to help either protect them or treat them uh, from disease as well.
1: So recently, Eddie, your company was awarded funding from the federal government. Um, now, you've had problems in the past, though, getting this type of funding uh, because the government contracting language specified monoclonal antibodies. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah, Jim, that's exactly right. For a long time, uh, the request for proposals on these types of opportunities came out, and they were very specific to monoclonal antibodies, and I think primarily because Uh, They were looking for something that could be scaled up, that would be directly and specifically targeted to the disease. And uh, there was not a technology that existed in order to be able to produce fully human antibodies outside of human donors. That's what our technology represents. And so we now find ourselves in a unique situation where first the the, the Department of Defense said, That in hindsight, it was a mistake to exclude us specifically from being able to respond to these RFPs. And so they changed their RFPs to simply say antibodies. And the very first RFP that they sent out that uh, said that, uh, we applied for uh, for for, for that RFP. And of course, that's what started our entire contract with them. And we are now in the unique situation where... Uh, DOD and BARDA are working together with us through that contracting mechanism to fund our response to COVID-19.
1: And BARDA being the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. So um, you're partnering with a company called CSL Bearing. So why is that?
0: Well, of course, one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to respond very rapidly. And that means increasing... Our capacity to produce these antibodies. And of course, uh, we had previously uh, started some work with CSL Bering. And I just want to point out the Bering part, I'd mentioned Emil von Bering before. Yes. This is that historical company. And so CSL Bering is one of the largest human plasma producers in the world. And they also produce human antibodies that is derived from human, from human donor sources. And so they understand polyclonal antibodies. And so this has given us the opportunity to not only work with them in an area that they are quite familiar with, but, and and to be able to to grow our capacity to produce these antibodies and all of that. But CSL has also brought a great partnership in our response to uh, COVID-19. And so we're excited to work with them.
1: Well, I saw that the World Health Organization named your company, SAB, as having the best therapeutic platform to address priority infectious diseases with epidemic potential, which is pretty cool. So is that telling us that biotech's future may be more cows and fewer lab rats?
0: (laughs) Well, Jim, I will tell you that, uh, of course, in, in biotech and in the response that uh, we as an industry have to make in being able to help people all over the world, there is plenty of room for the wonderful technologies uh, that we have available to us that can address very specific needs. But I will tell you that SAB is excited that we have a, a technology that is now being recognized as having the potential and certainly the data that has shown that we can respond rapidly with a highly targeted, highly efficacious antibody that can be used when we come against situations like this. And I think the important thing for us to remember is COVID-19 isn't the last. This has just been perhaps the worst that we have seen so far in our lifetimes. But these diseases continue to mutate and develop and transfer from humans to animals and animals to humans and back and forth. And so uh, this is something we're going to see in the future.
1: So you said in the beginning, Eddie, that uh, this is the kind of work that you've wanted to do since you were a young man. You've been doing it for a very long time and you've been working with these cows for a long time as well. So what does it feel like for you? As a scientist and as a biotech entrepreneur at this moment to realize that what you've been working on all of your adult life is now has the potential to make a a huge difference in a global pandemic that's threatening the entire seven and a half billion people on planet Earth.
0: Jim, I can't tell you how rewarding it is to work in a field where every day we get up with the motivation to be able to do something that is going to help treat people that are suffering from very serious diseases. I remember once saying that if I worked my entire career and I only had the opportunity to help one person, it would be worth it. And I will tell you that we've had that experience in a uh, a mycoplasma uh, 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 project that we did at Harvard Medical School. And we took a very serious infection and made antibodies to a a single patient. And we made antibodies to that infection. This was a antibiotic resistant infection this patient had for more than seven years. And those antibodies were created and put back into that person and that infection healed. And that was absolutely amazing. And now I feel greedy because I wanna help more people. And that's what's exciting uh, in, in, in my life and in the life of a great team that I work with at SAB.
1: Well, there are not just one person now, but uh, as I said, literally billions of people who are um, waiting and waiting for the biotechnology sector to come up with uh, uh, the, the medicines that will treat them and protect them. Uh, going into this, uh, throughout this pandemic, and as you've referenced the next. So keep up the good work, Eddie, a the, the lot of people counting on you.
0: Thank you, Jim.
1: Thanks for being with us. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe when you're podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit imbio.org.